Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome to a brand new episode of Behind the Mic. Behind the Mic is a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different and wide-ranging music scenes in the UK and beyond if possible. We discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Mic is Andy from alt-pop band Bad Love. The alt-pop, dream-pop, whatever one you want to call it, is absolutely thriving right now in the UK and it's one of my favourite genres to listen to, Bad Love included. We discuss how Bad Love started in this pod, we discuss the origin of sad boy pop as Andy describes Bad Love being... We discuss his social anxiety that he's lived with throughout his life, comparison culture in the music scene and outside the music scene, and much, much more. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Andy from Bad Love. Andy, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. We are finally here. We are finally here after so long. I think I got in touch with you about this podcast about nine months ago. So thank you so much for coming on, mate. As a bona fide alt-pop, dream-pop, however you want to call it, music nerd, I am hugely excited to check in with you and give you a voice on this platform, mate. And this is definitely another kind of pinch-me moment for the pod as, you know, I'm a music fan sort of growing up and now I'm actually interviewing artists that I love. So it's, it's a bit of a dream come true for me and every every artist that I interview. First off, I know times are limbo-ish at the moment, but how are you, mate? How are you coping? I'm good, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be out. <laughs> like, yeah, it's taken us a long time to sort this. We're both busy boys. <laughs> but yeah, you know what? I think past 12 months actually been like pretty tough for everybody. But I mean, for me, like, you know, my day job is being a producer and now I can get back in the studio of people. My life's just gone crazy again. Got three months of back-to-back stuff and you know I'm, I'm probably pretty covered for the rest of the year back doing the thing I love every day so you know I mean yeah can't fault the position I'm in at the moment I mean although I've gone from like not enough work to way too much so like I'm stressed every day but you know <laughs> I'm not gonna cry about it yeah, I definitely know what you mean about work-life balance for sure, man. So uh, I hope you can get that back in sync as soon as possible. We've got so much to crack on with on this show, mate, and there's so much interesting stuff I want to go into with you about. So let's just start the show. Let's start the pod, as we always do on Behind the Mic, by talking about your music journey, Andy, and the journey of bad love. So Before we do that, why don't you tell me how your love affair with music started? Who are some of the artists you listened to growing up? What impact did they have on you? Who got you into music in the first place and all that jazz? Yeah, okay. So none of my family play music at all, but everybody in my family loved music so much growing up. Like My dad would always blast anything in the car. He would find a new artist and like obsess it and play it in the car all the time. One of me and my dad's favourite artists is Jamiroquai. Like, sometimes I'll go around and he'll put it on and he'll be like, oh, remember when we used to listen to this, doing this, doing that, remember. So, yeah, I've got some, like, really great memories of enjoying music with my dad growing up. And my mum is, 
like I think enjoyed like different music. Like she loved bands like Duran Duran. I suppose my dad did as well. Like Duran Duran and lots of like sort of new romantics kind of stuff. She'd always just like sing in the house. And one thing I only realized recently is she would always like sing harmony parts to songs. And like as a kid, I never really knew why she wasn't singing the main thing, but like it sounded really good at the same time. And I don't think that she even knows that she does that. But it's like, it's really cute when I listen to her sing along or something. So yeah, I was just brought up in a, a household where everybody really loved music and... I guess I'd probably engage with it as much as families who listen to music do. And my mum and dad just decided to get me a guitar for, like, my 12th birthday, I think, or something like that. I tried guitar lessons and I didn't like them at all. I didn't like learning, like, old blues rock tunes and stuff like Gary Moore and things like that. I just wanted to, like, write songs. So, yeah, I suppose, like, from there, my journey had just been using the instrument as like just to enjoy it and just to make sounds that I wanted to and there'll be some things I'd learn but I'd like yeah never really had proper lessons for anything like that and so that's kind of like how I got started in loving music and in playing music and then at school I had like a couple of mates who were into music one really good mate I don't speak to anymore but like his dad played in a covers band and was like an amazing musician honestly I bet if I saw him again now I'd still be like oh yeah he fucking slapped that bass but yeah him and his dad were both like mint musicians and they both taught me loads and I would like learn to write songs with my mate James on like a Tuesday and Thursday night because me mum and dad wouldn't be home from work so I'd be like oh I'll just go around my mate's house and I would just play guitar with him just from doing things like that and like just playing with other kids who couldn't play music either and you're all just like, oh, we're all really rubbish at playing our instruments but we're having a good time, so that's all right. And then I suppose I got into playing in bands in high school. I sort of went, I suppose I went through a lot of different musical phases as kids do. I was into emo music for a little while there and did my fair share of like screamo bands and things like that and then kind of like settled, (laughs) settled like, in high school on being an indie kid and I was like really into Arctic Monkeys and Foles and things like that. So I played in a like a really kind of Foles rip-off band. At the time we all felt like we were kings of Stoke because we had enough mates that we could sell out the local venue in a snap of our fingers. So yeah, we did that for a while. And then yeah, then did a couple of other projects and I suppose through that, all the way through that process, I always kind of felt like the thing that I loved the most was making the songs. I've never been somebody who, like, loves performing. (laughs) I find I have a lot of anxiety about it, hence why we're having the podcast. But I enjoy really crafting the thing that's... The thing that nobody else has ever done. Like, I think there's something really magic in that, especially with other people, when you can all just sit in a room together and just birth this thing in an afternoon, especially when you're kids, with the idea that, like, this could change my life. And, like, you know, you write a new song every week and every week you walk away from it with some really rubbish phone recording that I bet if I looked back at all of them now, I'd be like, garbage, 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 rubbish songwriter. But, like, there's a magic in that that I just got obsessed with. Still do it today, like, still sit down and write a song, walk away from it after four hours being like, yeah. I am the best songwriter ever. And I'm sure in two hours' time, I'll look back at it and go, rubbish, put it in the bin. But I'm, like, addicted to that process of just making it. I suppose in being in there, that's kind of how Bad Love got started. I wanted to do a project that really felt like me. I think everything that I'd done before, I'd always come at it with a group of friends. 
with an idea of what the thing was going to be. We always, you know, we would always go, oh, let's do an indie band that sounds like Foles or let's do like a grungy old rock thing that sounds like Wolf Alice. And I kind of got to the point of starting Bad Love and I was like, I just want to do something that feels like songs that I write because, I don't know, in some level of maturity, I really dislike nowadays things that sound like people have written them to a specification things that don't sound honest and don't sound real i think there's so much cookie cutter bland music out there that doesn't sound like people so i'm not saying i make the best music in the world but i make stuff that feels like me and feels true to me and is like lyrically honest and and candid and all those kind of things so i guess that's a to b before we talk about the sound more specifically you told me off air way back when, when we chatted, that growing up, not many people you felt were like you. I guess we'll talk about this later on in the pod, but just quickly, do you feel like that was from a musical and creative sense or was it something deeper, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think not in any like kind of I'm better than anybody sense, but just, you know, I come from a very like working class background in Stoke-on-Trent. I mean, the people I grew up with are lovely, nice people and some of my best friends in the whole world I think the the big thing that divided me from everybody else is like I wasn't like a football lad I wasn't a sporty lad so obviously there's you know not all guys are into that stuff but like at school you either played football or you didn't and the ones that didn't would just like hang out in the canteen and eat dinner and it's not that I'm rubbish at football I was like all right I played in goal for the team for a little bit so I wasn't rubbish but I just didn't like it I wasn't that interested in it so I suppose in doing that, when everybody else has already got that pre-made, prefabricated click that they all fall into, I kind of just searched for people who were into other things. And I think in finding people that were into music, discovered people who thought more about the world like I do, that kind of, I don't know, a lot of the lads who, from really like impoverished, working class, underprivileged backgrounds who were into football, there was just so much stuff I didn't like about it. There was just so much misogyny, so much racism, so much homophobia. Even at a young age where I was starting to write music, I was already really aware of that because I already had loads of girlmates who would talk to me about their experiences in life and how, like, crazy some of the things they experienced were. And I already had gay friends who, like, would tell me even how their parents treated them, let alone other kids at school. And I just remember thinking, like... Why are other people around us giving you grief? Like, we all grew up together. Everybody knows you. So, like, why would they treat you like shit just because you like boys? It was incomprehensible to me. And I think I really, really, really found my click of people in people who loved music. I think that was always the thing for me is, like, I love doing the thing, but I also love the people. And that's even the same today. There's very few people I get in the studio as a producer that I don't, like, click with politically or on worldwide views because we all kind of come out from the same place of going oh we all do love music and it's such like a universal and uniting thing that it's almost impossible to to love music and love the world that that can be in and be homophobic and misogynistic and racist i just think that they're almost polar opposites i'm sure there are people who exist and do it but the two are kind of suggest to be mutually exclusive to an extent but definitely like coming from the working class background and trying to find something for me that kind of gave my life purpose in a sense and gave gave it some greater meaning than just like go to school, get a job, get a house, die. 
I don't get that. I still don't get that. You know, I've got mates who do jobs that they hate. And I'm like, why? You could change today. You could do anything. But I don't know. I want to move on to the scene more widely, Andy. So okay. you gave your sound that you make for the band Sad Boy Pop. I guess it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek name. <laughs> and there's also a little mental health angle to this name. Tell the listeners about that and then maybe about the wider scene and how you would describe the sound of alt pop or sad boy pop or dream pop etc yeah sure so yeah like sad boy pop is definitely tongue-in-cheek and i think a lot of people take it as a really literal thing that like i only want to write sad music man it's like it's not i think for me it's i'm coming at it from a place where i'm like lots of life is sad and lots of life is just weird so much pop music is just everything's great and everything's awesome and it's like personally i don't connect with that in any way i want to again i want to feel like i'm listening to a real human experience and like engaging with another person on some kind of level so yeah sad boy pop is to me about like writing music that is honest and candid and heart on your sleeve kind of thing and that's both happy and sad i mean there's so many like weird meme pages that are like sad boy life and it's all about like boys just having feelings and stuff and i just think that's just a really weird thing to ridicule it's just like such a negative thing in in our existence so that's kind of where it's ended up but it goes hand in hand with people like sasha sloan and lauv and laney and julia michaels to me who they just write sad pop and that doesn't mean that all the music is sad it just means it's like emotionally engaged pop music and it's trying to do something more than just i'm a boy i met a girl she is so nice i just want to do more than that and i'm inspired by people that want to do more than that and there's so many amazing artists like in the scene who just write amazing songs that i listen to and i'm like i feel like you just captured like a moment in your life there i really enjoy what you said there andy and I just thought of, you know, the word, the horrific word simp when you were kind of talking about that and how that's like posted about on social media all the time. Before we dive into the bad love journey more, you're also, like you said, an established music producer in your own right. How have you developed that skill set alongside your vocals and proficiency in instruments? Were you conscious that you needed that skill set to give you a better chance of succeeding in the industry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even from a young age, in almost every band that I was in, I was like the guy that would demo the bands. And I was the guy that would demo other people's bands for them. Like I would show up at other people's band rooms and just chuck a couple of weird mics into a room and just press go and everyone would be like really wowed that it was in an MP3 form and I would just showed up and did it on my laptop. But yeah, I always felt like I never wanted there to be a gap in what I could hear something being in my head and what was on paper and especially I've always found it like difficult to find other songwriters and people to write music with that really contribute in a really meaningful way and aren't just somebody that you're dragging through the whole process so I guess to an extent it became really necessary for me to work from just my bedroom and be able to use logical pro tools and just write on my own that all grew my skills like I was really lucky because during uni I was in my Foles kind of band. We were on a really good publishing deal with a with a French publishing company who put a lot of money behind the project, sent us through a few amazing studios. And that was the point that I really engaged with it. The first one we went to was in a really amazing studio that was in a basement under an art gallery in Paris. 
and we were there for like three weeks doing I can't remember like seven songs or something. The label put a crazy amount of money behind a bunch of twenty year old lads from Stoke who had no idea what they were doing, but they just saw a bit of magic in it. And I just remember the whole session. I was just going to this French producer. I was just like, what does this do? Why are you doing that? What's that knob do? Why are you pushing that fader there? What program are you using? Why are you using this amp? And like, just being in that room, I just remember like, there was like a really life-changing moment for me. At the time I was doing demos at home and sort of kind of knew how to do a few bits and bobs. And following on from there, went through a few other really good studios, so really like learnt my craft a little bit. And I'd done a degree in philosophy at university because I'd kind of thought that was what I wanted. And by the time that I got halfway through and went, nah, this is rubbish and not what I want at all, everyone was going, oh, you need a plan B though, so maybe you should just finish it. So I was like, fine, whatever, I'll finish my stupid degree. So I finished that and literally as soon as I was done with it, I just started ringing studios straight away to just try and get some some work and I ended up ringing the studio that I'm, I started out as the assistant at. Now the head engineer who's called Tom is like one of my best friends in the world and no longer work at the studio but like I hire it all the time as like a full-time freelance producer. So that was kind of like how I got into it and it was just, yeah, for me it was always about I was just learning stuff that gave no barrier between me and making a song. So I'm not the world's best guitarist, I'm not the world's best singer, I'm not the world's best producer, but I learned to do all those things because I just wanted to write and make better songs. I've honed my craft definitely so much in producing other artists. I've honed my songwriting skills and you know my ability to play instruments and just engage with music. But for me, it was always, it's always just been about like, I've never learned other people's songs on guitar. I've just gone, oh, I can hear this thing in my head that I want to play. How do I play that? And if I can't play it, then I've got to practice for a bit. So it's always just been about bridging that gap between what I can see in my head and what's on paper. On producing itself, what impact does that have on your mental health, Andy? And out of the, the strings you have to your bow, you know, producing, writing, performing, playing instruments, singing, <laughs> which one has the biggest impact on your mental health, do you think? I think definitely... My sense of self-worth is so tied to my immediate ability with songwriting. If I wrote a mint song yesterday, today I'll wake up thinking I'm Jesus. If I wrote a really rubbish song yesterday, I'll just be like, until I write another good one or do something good, in my own head I'm just like, you're rubbish, why don't you just quit music, you're wasting your time, just go and get a rubbish job because you may as well not bother with this. I don't know what it is in me, but I'm just so intrinsically linked to my ability to do that. And I think probably that's because I try and put so much of me into it that it feels like when I'm writing a song, it feels like a very, very personal endeavour. I absolutely love producing other people. I'm such like an introvert extrovert. I'm so happy to be inside and I get so much anxiety about going and meeting new people. But then I just get in the room and vibe with four or five people. And most of the time, I just have a mint day. I've had artists in that really aren't very good artists, but just like amazing people to just be around and just such a vibe. And I think as long as you're all ready to engage with making something in the studio, it's almost it's almost impossible to have a bad day doing it. You know, it's easy to have a long day and a stressful day and a tiring day, but I like that it's all about the people in the room. And like at the moment, you know, just started going back into sessions again after having done most of my work on Zoom 
for such a long time and I feel like that's such an alienating process. Like I've written a whole EP with this amazing songwriter in New York and we wrote two really great songs on Zoom and we're working on a wider EP and I just remember just being like, this is such a strange distance between us. Whereas when I'm in the room with somebody, sort of feel like you can be so human and just so real with somebody so quickly because as long as everyone leaves their ego at the door, then you're all cool. You can all just be on a level straight away and really, really honest about what you're trying to make, really honest about what the song's about. And yeah, I I mean, I think being a producer is really good for me because it really makes me feel fulfilled in helping other people make something that they feel like is amazing. And for me, working on music every day and I almost exclusively only make music that I really vibe with. You know, if somebody sends me a demo and it's just not a song that I really like or a genre that I really dig, I just sort of go, well, I, don't, I don't think I'm the guy for it because I, I can't be honest about my love for, for you or what you're doing. And so, you know, I try and keep it really real with everybody and just be like, yeah, we all vibe and I really love what you're doing. So let's just see what we can make. On Behind the Mic, Andy, we're always keen to expose the realities and break down the myths of being artists in the scene. Now, when we spoke off air a good while ago, you mentioned how you're likely to stay up till the early hours working on the latest single or project in the works. On that work-life balance, do you feel a pressure to do that internally or is that your preferred time slot for productivity? (laughs) It both works well and is totally unwanted. Yeah, my sleep pattern, especially in lockdown, has been so bad. Like, I've been going to bed at like five, six in the morning just because I'm active and doing stuff and my brain just won't switch off. I feel like for me it's really negative, but I do get the rewards in the <laughs> in the product at the end. So I guess going back to what we were saying before, with feeling so emotionally tied to what I'm doing, it's almost like a self-fulfilling process in a way that it's a time that does work well for me because everyone's asleep and I'm just like, it's just me. But yeah, certainly the work-life balance bit of it is really difficult to get right. I think it's dead easy to overwork yourself there's always a thousand extra jobs to do there's always somebody who just wants you to have a listen through a song or tell you what's going on with their band and things like that and I really want to be involved in the people that I'm working with as a producer I really want to like be an important part of the process for them but yeah that can become really emotionally draining sometimes especially everybody's just got the dramas in their life in a way if you're a good songwriter you feed that into your music so that kind of means that if nobody's hit me up, there's not that much serious stuff going on. And then when people are hit me up, it's like, I just split up my girlfriend, two people left the band, I just lost my mum or my dad, and all these things. And then as, you know, somebody who writes with most artists that I work with as well, like I'm sort of listening to the song going, okay, so where are you at? And like trying to be positive, but also engage and push them to do more. And so there's always extra to do. And when you're in the studio, it's a never-ending task. I mean, I really like being a solo producer in the studio. I, you know, I'm not that big a fan of having an engineer or assistant with me because I think it just puts too many people in the room who are just about the tech thing and not about the music. But that just means there's like more stuff to run just for me and especially in bigger studios. Like the studio that I work from is, it's all analog gear and there's just like, it's a big studio, so there's so much space and there's so many things that need to be set up and so much management of it all that needs to happen all the time. But I think if you can get into the rhythm of it, then you end up with something better because you minimise the people in the room and then once you roll in, there's not four extra people sat about just like 
waiting for the singer to do a good take or waiting for the guitarist to just do that amazing bit. It's just so much less pressure. But yeah, I think it's really easy to end up on the wrong side of the spectrum of it. And especially working from home, I've really tried to get the work-life bits under wraps a bit more, especially when I haven't had as much work on but it's all online, I can really easily be like, right, I'm mixing today, and I'm going to mix from 10 till 6, and then I'm going to switch off the computer, and I'm going to leave it. But when the jobs are never-ending and it's always coming in, it's really difficult to just get to the end of. Given how many producers I follow and producers in general are always <laughs> posting teaser clips of new bangers that sound completely finished, <laughs> does comparison culture play into that habit for you? when it comes to you as a producer, not just as a music fan? And are you affected by that or your mental health when it comes to like productivity or perfectionism culture and stuff like that? Um, I really get inspired by finding a new artist that's released an amazing tune. For example, an artist I really like, A Valley, and they wrote a song called Like 1999 recently. I just thought that song was amazing. I listened to it on repeat so much and it just made me... I came back to it about four or five times and at the end of every time listening to it went, okay, I need to go and write something as good or better than that now. So, you know, I think it's whether you see that trait as being toxic or not. I think definitely for up-and-coming producers and up-and-coming songwriters, it's a really weird landscape to be in because I know, for me, I can make a beat in about an hour that sounds like a finished song. Doesn't mean that the song's any good, doesn't mean that the beat really bangs, but I can make it kind of sound like it does. And then I film it and people message me all the time and they're like, yo, bro, he beats a fire, like lit tunes, bro. You know, and I'm, it's just because it's coming through a phone and it all sounds really squished and really loud and like that makes it all sound really good. But what matters is the song at the end of it. But if you're like a new producer and you have no idea how to make an 808 that really bangs or drums that just like really groove nicely it could be a really difficult landscape to be in and be inspired by because it feels like you're at like maybe the start or end of the spectrum and there's people who are all the way at the master level that are putting stuff out every day that yeah it's like anything in comparison culture you you know you're only seeing the 10 percent best bits and for every one of those beats that a producer makes that's sick and fire and lit bro there's about nine others that are just rubbish but you know you see all your 10 rubbish ones and probably don't see the merit in the one really good one that you've got whereas yeah they aren't showing you the nine really crap beats that they made and i think that's the thing is like i write rubbish songs all the time that just never get sent to anybody and sometimes when i'm done i should go right delete the whole pro tool session because that was a waste of my time and that's fine because that's just part of the process. Like most artists historically have only ever been judged against their best works. Any, you know, Bach or Beethoven, nobody goes through their like discography of rubbish things that aren't, you know, didn't change humanity's perception of music. They just listen to the big concertos that are played in theatres and everything. To be honest, a lot of those messages you were, you were doing impressions of were probably for me, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> thank, thanks for that. Yeah, I was just I was reading your quotes on Instagram. There. <laughs> <laughs> I want to move on to the live show process for you, Andy. Now, you said earlier that you had a bit of stage anxiety when it came to performance. Can you tell me about 
the story behind the first Bad Love live set maybe and and that mental process and then maybe what the stage provides for you as well. You know, are you yeah. somebody, for example, that has a persona on stage or is the stage escapism? Is it somewhere you can truly be yourself or yeah. someone else? You know, tell me more about that. I tell you what, instead of telling you about Bad Love's one, because I've only done one gig as Bad Love because we basically, we did one supporting a band called Paris Youth Foundation who are like really mint lads and it was actually a really good gig. And then we had a headline booked and then COVID happened and stuff. But instead, I'll talk about my gigs in my previous project, which was more of an indie band because that was kind of my first time being the front man of the band. Because in my kind of Foley rip-off thing, I played lead guitar and wrote songs. But I was never like front and centre. And when I finished that, I did my previous project called Fierce Cella which was kind of like, I suppose, like it just indie pop, really. I used to find, and I mean, I still do, I still find the stage a very anxious place to be because there's nothing like getting on stage to a room of, you know, a couple of hundred people who are, especially as a new artist, so you're a supporting artist, you're standing on stage in front of a couple of hundred people who've got their arms folded and are waiting for the the main artist to come on. There's nothing really like going, I've really got to impress these people. Because the best gigs are when you've got 200 people there waiting to see you and everyone's hyped up, so they all hype you up. And as you're walking through the crowd or walking around, people are like, oh, yeah, like, can't wait for you to play. I'm, like, buzzing. And, you know, they know all your songs. And that's, like, a totally different experience. Still, I still get a different kind of anxiety. But I think I feel like me and most bands I've ever played in, you lose yourself once you start going. You've got that really initial 30 seconds of everybody plugging their instruments in, looking at how many people are just staring at you. There's not many times in life where that many people would just look at you in silence and not do anything. And if you don't do anything, they won't do anything. It's just a surreal experience. So you just have that 30 seconds where you're all plugging your instruments in and everyone's making sure they're in tune. You're making sure that, you know, your drummer knows where he is and what day it is and what songs we're actually playing. <laughs> and then you start... And then you're in it. Like, for me, that's how it works. You know, I, especially beforehand, I'm, like, crippled with anxiety. I'll be in whatever back room it is. Everybody else is, like, hitting drinks and, like, talking with girls and things like that. Like, and, you know, I'm always just like, I'm okay in this little back room. I'll be fine here for a minute. And then I get out on stage and I'm like, okay, now I'm Andy from Bad Love. Whereas in that back room, I'm, I'm Andy Gannon and I'm just like, I feel like I should be in the crowd watching the, the artist. But yeah, then you start and then you are the person in the band. Maybe a lot of people don't have that. But for me, that's it's probably almost like a compartmentalization of it. Because I know that once I'm on stage, I feel like a really confident person. Because I'm like, yeah, cool. Everyone's watching me. And these are songs that I wrote. And these are my boys. And like, we're all coming to whatever, like, wherever we are. Like, you know, driven all the way down to Norwich from Stoke. And like, you know, there's... 100 people there singing along to it and another 100 people in the crowd who've never seen you before. So I'm like, yeah, you've come to see me and the boys and we're going to like show up for you, you know. But yeah, certainly before and um, I find that really difficult. Yeah, I don't know who doesn't really. Other than my drummer, he's just the most chill guy ever. He'd just be like, oh, wait, chill, what, just chill, man. It's totally cool. It's like, it's all good. I'm like, Ben, you'd, I don't know if you're smart enough to feel anxiety. <laughs> but he, yes, I love him to bits. <laughs> I want to talk about the Bad Love discography. I mean, it's not massive, so maybe this part of the pod won't be as long. But 
You've released four singles on right in saying so far. So you've released More Than Friends, Hurricane, A Place For Me, and the latest single is Cashmere Tears. Mm-hmm. Which one out of those means the most to you? And then maybe tell me about the build-up to the first release of that first single okay. as well and any anxieties behind that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like A Place For Me is the most personal song to me. They're all very personal journey stories. I try and force myself to do that in a way because I think you can do so much stuff that if you go, okay, like these are the parameters that I'm going to work within, then it kind of forces you down a path a bit more. But yeah, A Place For Me is very much about both finding your place in the world and a place in a relationship and finding meaning in, like, I don't believe in anything. You know, I don't believe in any greater power. I don't believe that there's any reason for us to be here. So a part of it is just about finding your own meaning in the world and finding, and like for so many people, that's love. And also massively like people not dragging toxic pasts through life with them. Like we've all had so many negative experiences and I really try and approach each relationship both romantically and platonically with as much positivity as I can do. Especially as you get older, like you've had so many mates who dip on you for no reason or... You know, you find they're just like talking behind your back or like relationships where people cheat and, you know, or people are dishonest. So that one feels like a very personal song to me. I mean, I've got I've got way more ones that go way more real and are like really direct and that I've been writing recently, especially in lockdown, I suppose, maybe because I've just been on my own a bit more, become a bit more introspective perhaps. But yeah, the lead up to the first song was... To be honest, I didn't have that much anxiety about it because I'd been sat on the song for such a long time. And actually, in retrospect, I feel like I've changed the sound of Bad Love so much. I'm only just over 12 months into it right now. So More Than Friends came out Valentine's Day last year. So obviously, like, literally just before lockdown, basically. And that means I've released every single during a global pandemic, which is an awful time to choose to be an artist, you know? But yeah, I'd been sat on that song for such a long time and I actually wrote it and produced it. I mean, I made a whole EP around that song and kind of did that one and then got to the end of it and went, I don't know if this feels right yet. I still love the song, but I feel like I I kind of made it into a guitar band thing because that's what I was used to doing. But yeah, coming to it, I was just trying to do something new. I think so. I wasn't really anxious about it because it had been a long time since I'd released anything with a previous project. And I was, just went, fine, fuck it. Let's just put something out. This is the one we all like. Let's just finish it and put it out and do it. Because sometimes you can be crippled with too many choices and you just got to decide at some point to just do it. I know so many artists with so many mint songs who just don't know what to put out. So they don't put anything out. And then like eight months later, they've still put no songs out. And for them, they know that they're really great songwriters and really great artists. But nobody else knows that because you haven't put anything out for people to enjoy. And I've certainly fell in that trap before of not putting enough music. So the project itself doesn't get going. Whereas I watch artists who sometimes don't even do like great music, but release it consistently and have great PR campaigns and have great videos and have great press and are all just like cool, engaging people who do really well just from being in the sphere. So I just think you just have to go, yeah, right, fine, do it now. And then the journey from there, for me, is like 
evolving each single to the point where it's at now and I'm still trying to find the sound of what bad love is. I mean, like I said at the start, you know, I didn't go at it with an intention of going, oh, bad love is 80s and bad love is chorusy guitars and bad love is this and that. It's just, I go at each song going, what does this song feel like it needs and how would I like to hear it rather than here are the parameters for bad love and if it doesn't fit in them, then we don't make it. As a final question, Andy, doing bad love obviously for 12 months and just doing music for as long as you have what has this journey taught you about yourself do you think i think like i say over the last 12 months most of it has been in lockdown so think for me as an artist and a producer and a songwriter it's taught me to be so much more introspective and so much more reliant on myself i think a lot of things that i would otherwise rely on other people to just kind of sort out for me I sort of went, okay, cool, you can't get in a room with those people now. You can't just jam it around in a practice room. So you've got to work this bit out. And sometimes it's that last 10% of anything that you're doing, whether it's like a mix as a producer or a production in the room or writing a song that is the hardest bit. I think Bad Love has definitely taught me as well a lot about just being yourself in what you're doing. Like I say, you know, I stuck the one idea I wanted at the start was that I wanted it to be honestly and truly me and not feel like it was come out with any ego or any preconception of what that is or what kind of topics I should write about or things like that. And that's something I'm still discovering because that changes every day. You know, who I am in my life right now is very different than who I was even six months ago. Like I've recently split up from a long-term relationship and that's a weird thing to go through especially like as the world is opening up again especially as we've been so isolated for the last however long and that means that I'll approach bad love differently because it's so intrinsically tied to who I am and where I'm at but yeah I think definitely in being the artist bad love it's made me find a real appreciation for trying to be me online and trying to in doing this podcast as well like trying to find a platform for the things that I believe in, you know, the things I want to say. Like, I recognise fully that so much of my music and so much of what I do as a producer and everything is is all so tied to having mental health issues, to having depression, to having anxiety for all my life and, and going through those really bad bits. So when people come in to the studio, like, even as a producer and they're, like, talking about feeling anxious or... They've got a song about, you know, feeling suicidal. I feel like, shit, yeah, like, I get you and I want to engage with this on a real level. So, yeah, I think it's definitely taught me so much about just being me and being honest and real with other people about it and trying to find a way to just bring that into what we're doing because, like I said at the start, I think I felt like maybe when I was 16 and first started with all of my mental health problems of like anxiety and that led to me being depressed as like you know as a teen and stuff all I really kind of needed to an extent was just to know that that was normalized because a huge part of my anxiety around it was not knowing that other people were feeling the same felt very much like I was the only person in the world that had that problem and like Nowadays, people talk much more openly about it. like me and you have even already had chats off air already. Like, you know, just about the human experience of life. And especially as you get a bit older, you go, oh, yeah, like that is just a normal thing. And 
nowadays I've got no time for people that put me down because I'm feeling human because I'm like oh, just this space is making me feel a bit anxious or you know I'm just a bit weirded out right now I just need to go take five growing up going back to it especially in a working class environment lads would be like you're like what you being a pussy for like don't be like that nowadays I just be like oh yeah fuck off mate I don't care whatever like I I will meet you toxic masculinity with modern masculinity and I'll fucking shit on you all the time don't worry about that like you could take the lad out of Stoke, but, you know, can't take Stoke out of the lad. We've talked all about bad love and Andy, the producer. I want to go behind the mic now and talk about your own journey, Andy. So I ask all my guests this question first. Tell me about your early life in Stoke. You've already alluded to it a little bit, but your childhood, teenage years. And then looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time? Who's the Andy we meet here? I had, like, a really good childhood. You know, I've got a, a brother and sister who are twins. We had, like, two dogs, and our house wasn't massive, and it was in, like, some little suburb in Stoke. You know, I mean, it's a very underprivileged city, but I had, like, I've got great parents. I've got a family that I, like, I love loads. Like, my sister's living with me at the moment, and I've always had a mint relationship with them. So I feel like I had a really positive childhood I never felt like my parents pushed me into doing anything I didn't want to do they always wanted the best for me and always pushed me to be the best version of whatever I wanted to do like I did okay in school and you know but they were always just like if that's not what you want to do then that's okay I mean my dad has done so many things growing up so many different jobs like I mean he's like a crazy talented guy and he like built half of our house just from the ground up like he can do honestly that guy can do anything he can wire up anything he can like bricklay i've seen him make a roof just goes yeah i can work out i'll do that and just goes and does it so neither of them have ever been like you need to do this one thing you need to go and do the degree in philosophy or you need to do well in school like they were all always like if you like laying bricks go lay bricks if you like making music go make music that's okay and i always had that i think as I became a teen, well, in my early childhood, like, Stoke's a bit of a rough place. And so, especially as a lad, you kind of grow up into that and you don't even think about it. So it becomes almost second nature to be that kind of kid. So I was like a rough, scrappy kid at school. And, like, you know, if people said things I didn't like, I wouldn't just say, oh, leave me alone. I'd go, I'd, I'll tell you what, at the gates after school, I'm going to smack you. Like, you know, just a dumb, stupid, rough kid from a rough place. But as, like, I grew up, I realised that's, like, not the way that you should deal with the world and that there's always somebody bigger than you. Somebody somebody always get the brother on you anyway, so don't bother. But, yeah, for most of my childhood, I kind of fitted in just fine. I think when I got to high school, kind of really started to make sense that, like, there was then a disparity between the lads that, like I said at the start, wanted to be the football lads, the chase the girls lads that didn't want to engage with school. Like I enjoyed learning stuff. I still enjoy learning stuff. I listen to so many podcasts now. Like I just love walking away from something going, oh, I learned something crazy about like the ancient hanging gardens of Babylon that I'll never, like, didn't know. I'm just such a nerd in that. I didn't connect that well with what was the atypical male path of my teenage years and to be honest I didn't experience any mental health problems through all of that I was really lucky to 
Maybe I had some anxieties about exams and stuff, but mostly I was pretty confident in who I was. I had a good group of friends who were all into music and we all kind of just discovered being young people together. So I think all of that was really, really positive. And then the tipping point for me was I kind of a really weird thing, but I got food poisoning <laughs> on a burger van that I was working on at V Festival on the first day before the festival even opened. <laughs> it was it was horrible. I don't know if you've ever tried to go for a ship before they've put the portaloos up, but as a 16-year-old kid, that is, that is not fun, man. Like, And I don't know, just that experience being trapped in a place like that, because if you've ever tried to get out of a festival on the first day, you can't because everybody's getting in, and I'm like, whoa, I am so ill, and I was like delirious. In retrospect, as a grown adult, I'd just be like, oh, I'll just deal with this. This will be fine. But at that point, I probably had hardly been out of Stoke. I was so used to the five-mile radius of my house and not used to big, wide, scary world stuff. So, yeah, and that kind of, like, started a whole thing for me. So that whole summer, I was, like, dealing with really crazy social anxiety issues that I'd never felt before. Like, I would get panic attacks about thinking about getting on a bus or getting on a train, some of which I still experience today. It's almost learned behaviour. I get on a train and my brain goes, trains make you anxious. And I go, no, they don't, mate. I've got on loads of trains. And the brain still goes, yeah, but they make you anxious, so you're going to be anxious now. Still deal with that, but deal with it in a different way. So, yeah, so I was like kind of dealing with all that. I, was, I had a lot of anxiety about seeing friends and meeting people, even just going around a mate's house. And that carried on all the way through sort of my young life, I suppose. It impacted a lot of my time at college. I'd started at one college to study music almost exclusively. I think I was doing music, photography and something else. I can't even remember, but I remember just being really excited about doing music because my school growing up just didn't even have a music course. And I was like, oh my God, I can like, I can do music for my life. That'd be amazing. But I had to drop out of that because it was a whole new environment with loads of people I didn't know and just gave me such crippling anxiety. Like, even on the first day of college starting, I couldn't make it in. I just stood at the gates <laughs> and I had to just ring my nan and be like, nan, you're going to have to come pick me up because I can't even go in. And she came, picked me up, took me home. I was like, we'll try again tomorrow. Went back the next day, did exactly the same thing. I went, nan, you're going to have to come pick me up. So she came, picked me up. She's like, what a gem. Came, picked me up in a little Yaris, took me home. And then at the end of that day, I was like, I, I can't do this. Like, it, it's just not, I can't physically get over that hurdle. And I don't know why. And doctors were throwing all kinds of weird ideas at me. And they were saying like, it was like, or oh, maybe you got like a hormonal imbalance. Maybe it's, is it your diet? Things like that. Nobody was going, oh, it's anxiety. So let's get you to a therapist. Let's get you to a counselor. Let's get you on some medication. Like just a really, such a, badly mismanaged and undereducated part of the process so then I started the sixth form to my school which felt like quite a safe space because it was just all people I'd grown up with but then that kind of forced my life down the okay you can't do music at college and therefore I, I don't know if you know but if you didn't do music at college it's really really hard to get into music at university so that kind of sent me down that path then of like I was doing like business studies and English literature and philosophy and things I'd still enjoyed, but not what I wanted to do and not who I saw myself as. And I still had all those problems. I was still finding it really difficult to get into college. I think my attendance by the end of it 
was like 22% or something. I remember the day I got my A-level results. I remember one of my teachers who I really liked, she was like, honestly, I didn't think that you would do this. Like, I'm really proud of you for getting here because I was just so sure that you were just sat at home not engaging with it. But I would like sit at home and be like, I don't want to fail. I, I can't do nothing. So I would just sit and like try and learn like, you know, the course stuff from textbooks and online and things like that because I was just so crippled also with the idea that okay my anxiety means that I can't go there today because like even the thought of going there makes me sick and makes me dizzy but at the same time I was like I can't do nothing with my life because I can't sit on the dole and I had a part-time job at Primark at the time and I was like I don't want to do that all my life that's equally not what I see myself as doing so I was I found that a really difficult time in my life. That carried on for a long time. I think a big part of it was being undiagnosed with what it was and dealing with it every day was making me really depressed. And at points, like I say, I don't believe in anything greater. Maybe that's like the philosophy side of me, but I don't think there's any great meaning to life other than what we give it and what we find to be our purpose in the world. So there was plenty of times where I was going why am I here? Why am I getting up every day and doing this? When all my mates are going, let's go out, let's go have a party around someone's house, or let's get drunk in a field, or let's go to the cinema, or let's go to these gigs. And every single one of them just filled me with such dread and such like just feelings of uncontrollable anxiousness. They were just getting to the end of it going, I just wake up every day, lie in bed or sit on the sofa watching TV. What is the point in being here? So... Yeah, I think that was like a a really difficult and defining time for me and and overcoming that. I tried so many different medications and I went to some really bad counsellors and therapists, people who really didn't engage with me because maybe they're overworked, maybe they were just rubbish at their jobs, but people who just fundamentally were no help. And the thing that actually helped me so much was starting meditation you know, I'm really taking it seriously and really engaging with that properly, a mindfulness meditation. And and I started doing Wing Chun martial arts, which is like what Bruce Lee did. Basically, because my dad had done that and he was like, maybe you should just do some exercise that you really enjoy. So between those two things, I kind of felt like I suddenly started to get myself under control. And I think because I felt like I had some control of myself, you know, of my own thoughts and the way that I felt in each situation that was the point that it really started to get better and I think it was a really difficult time I mean following on from that when I finished college and went to uni I'd actually got a place to study music at Lipper which is the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts and it's honestly a wicked place like there I mean the UK's I think really lucky to have so many great music schools like I know so many people that have been to BIM and Lipper and there's so many masterclass people that come through and just teach you all the best bits about being a songwriter and what being an artist. So I was so excited about doing that. But I got to the end of college and I was kind of like, I don't feel like I can move away. I don't feel confident enough in myself to move to Liverpool and be independent. So then I stayed at a university in Stoke and did philosophy and forced myself down that tangent again. And those are all just really, I suppose, crazy knock-on effects of, for me, that like one specific incident that sparked me developing really bad social anxiety and speaking to therapists and people since then people kind of talk about the idea of it maybe being like a 
PTSD kind of influenced anxiety. You know, it's like a traumatic incident for you as a person that just makes your brain do things differently. I still like, yeah, don't think science understands it all that well just yet. But certainly one thing I found really hard through the whole thing was that people didn't talk about it. I didn't know anybody else who had those feelings. Music was my real safe space. I didn't know that any musicians felt that way. So, yeah, I think it was very, like, isolating experience for the whole thing. Before we move on to adult Andy, I want to go back to that period in sixth form because, like you said, you were going through this really crippling social anxiety. I remember you telling me there was one point where you felt it during a gig, so even in a space where Mm. you felt you were going to enjoy yourself and have that safe space, you still felt that social anxiety. As it affected your school attendance, you were given... A very cruel nickname of sick note by your <laughs> year. I forgot I told you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You did tell me that. You did tell yeah, me that. How yeah. how did that affect you and your mental health? Because do you think if those kids knew what you were going through, they'd have maybe thought twice before labeling you like that? Or like me in my school, secondary school experience, do you think a lot of those kids were dickheads and quite cruel anyway? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, I was part and parcel of it as much as anybody else. You know, I think education about it at that point in my life, maybe it was the school, maybe it was the period in time of where we were at as a country or whatever, but nobody really spoke about it. I think definitely nowadays there's so much more education about it and kids in general of that age are so much more aware of that. Maybe if they'd understood how that made me feel, they wouldn't have done. I do wonder whether at the time it made me feel really uncomfortable But these were people that I'd grown up with and people that I would attend parties with and would hang out with. They weren't my best friends, but they were friends. I think in a way, even though you would all rib each other, I think it's almost a way of sort of camaraderie in a weird kind of messed up kid way, just maybe misdirected. But yeah. Didn't help. It didn't help me. It didn't make it feel good to show up at a class and people would be like, "Whoa, sick notes finally here! Fucking hell, is it Christmas?" And I'd just be like, "Oh, kind of wish I hadn't showed up now because I just wanted to get in and slink to the back of the classroom and nobody say anything." Yeah, the social anxiety at gigs was definitely a, a real problem as well. Like, and it's so much about the way that people around you deal with it. Just the same as at school, I feel like. Now I can deal with that kind of space so much easier. But then nobody really understood it. So if I would go, I'm at a gig watching my favourite artist and I feel like headed and I feel sick and having all these anxious thoughts, everybody around me is like, why can't you just watch the guy sing and just enjoy it? And I'd be like, I just need to go to the bathroom. I just need to go outside. I just need like, I've spent so much time in smoking areas, not smoking, that's like just sat getting some air and I think if if you're around people that go oh yeah that's it's cool man I feel that a bit too jump me come outside with you that would instantly make you go oh no it's maybe if you're feeling the same thing maybe I don't need to go outside maybe I can just be here and be in the moment but yeah I think both of those things are people around you not understanding how other people experience the world and just assuming that everybody experiences it in the real 2d world that they kind of do that people that don't want to communicate about it and don't want to engage with it and don't have the feelings i feel like life must be really easy if you just go through it and you don't have all this like internal monologue about like 
every individual thing that's happening in life and everything that can go wrong and everything that can make you anxious and life must be amazingly easy <laughs> like but yeah i think it's so much of both of those that are about the people around you engaging with other people with just with a bit of care for me maybe that is like a huge problem of going to like such a such a working class place where people just don't engage with that stuff and there's no education about it even though you maybe grew up with people it's just like they almost don't care people didn't care that i was going for counseling people didn't care that i had this thing called anxiety there were people with physical conditions that were like really catered for like there was one guy i think who had like some spinal surgery and you know people were like so sympathetic about that you know as human beings we were just all equal and we just all everyone's got their own shit to deal with no i do hear what you're saying mate i do hear what you're saying and i, I agree with you in the fact that there was a lot of people in my school who were maybe physical conditions were completely catered for and there was a lot more sympathy towards them and empathy and rightly so because it was visible whereas yeah. mental health is invisible so therefore people either didn't recognize it they were ignorant they were negligent or they just didn't care so i'm completely yeah. with you on that when we're in those environments <clears throat> and when we're having that level of trauma and we're having that level of isolation it's very easy to feel like there's no way out. And I certainly felt like that for a very long time, possibly until I left that school at 16, my secondary mm. school. For you, you told me you didn't see a way out in that period as well. At any point, did you experience any level of suicidality? Yeah, I think to an extent I did. I think to a larger extent for me, it was not suicidality per se of wanting to kill myself, but certainly a sense in which i was just like i don't want to die but i don't want to be here that's such a huge part of the spectrum for a lot of people like i think some people do just want to die and that is a real problem in our society that they see no way out to that extent that's the spectrum to the extreme i think and i have been there before certainly at this point in my life i really abuse my body i would go out and i would just get fucked up because sometimes i want to feel anything and sometimes i want to feel nothing and that kind of self-harm trying to just do anything to be anything and feel anything is just as much a part of that negative cycle and is a real path towards obviously very dangerous suicidality i mean i've had quite a few periods in my life where i've thought about it i'm not sure why philosophically i managed to not be there I think I kind of see the distinction between not wanting to be here and not wanting to kill myself. Maybe I can always just see that kind of tiny light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's something that we all just need to be really candid about. That's the reason I'm kind of doing this is because it's something I never really spoke about, even with my close friends, just some days waking up and being like, why? Why? Why should I do today? Why should I get up? That is only a few steps away from, okay, why don't I just kill myself? Because you can only not find purpose in the world for so long before you sort of like, well, all I'm doing is the shit stuff. All I'm doing is household chores. All I'm doing is washing the dishes or doing, doing my clothes. I'm not enjoying the experience of life in any way. And I think that's always where I've, whenever I get to that point, that's the experience that I have of like, is like, I'm just doing the rubbish stuff. I'm just showing up at college and learning. And I don't like that. And I'm, just watching TV that I don't enjoy and I'm finding myself with too much anxiety to go to gigs and go to parties and to write music and I'm too depressed to be asked to do anything that is actually of any enjoyment to me. So 
Why? I mean, for me, I could have easily ended up doing it maybe if I hadn't had a supportive family. Like, my relationship with my dad as a young teen was really difficult because he did a really stressful job. But I always knew that he was there. And, you know, my relationship with him now, I can talk more about this kind of stuff with him than I could maybe then. But I've always had a really good relationship with my family and I think I can really, really, really see how just take a few of those bits of the puzzle away and suddenly it's like, well, yeah, okay, cool. But I also can't see any reason and there's nobody to be here for and I haven't got a girlfriend. And so, yeah, let's just do it. I can 100% see how people can get there because I've been there myself with all the privilege of having a really like loving pair of parents and a brother and sister who are mint and I've got a cousin who's like a brother and so many other cousins in my family that there's just so much love there. But even I get got there. Everything else aside, it's just all about people, isn't it? So yeah, I certainly experienced that way too much and a huge part of that is about people not talking about it and like I say at the time, you know, it was, it was with really bad therapists and counsellors who were like not engaging with my issues as a as a young person and not engaging with the trauma and what that can carry through to someone's life. Like if somebody had like properly helped me at that point and like really helped me develop the things that I did later on in, in meditation and martial arts and, and things that really engaged with me as a person. If somebody had gone, why don't you try these things rather than just trying to make up therapies or counsellors, trying to make up some strange narrative about your life that kind of tries to make it all make sense and then go in, cool, you're better now because I'm comparing your life to a, a deep swimming pool that you can't swim out of the bottom of. Like, what? But yeah, so I think it's a huge part is about people just talking about that. And if somebody had gone, okay, why are you having these feelings? Like, if I'd have been a person that could get there, maybe they could have stopped me. You know, and maybe that's like a big reason that a lot of people don't is because in this kind of really shit system that doesn't even recognize the proper problems in people and just this isn't fit for purpose in a way because you know there's like i'm sure there's tons of young people out there having all these kind of same thoughts of going everywhere on the spectrum of everywhere from i don't know what my purpose is in life to i don't know why i'm getting up in the morning to like why should i bother even living i get it it really frustrates me that that's just such a ingrained part of our culture that just doesn't get even spoken about or dealt with in any way before we wrap up this topic, Andy, I want to talk briefly about comparison culture outside of music. It's something that you wanted to talk about. I lived with it for quite a long time before I got a handle on my mental health and I started muting all the people that I needed to yeah. mute and unfollow on yeah. social media. Just tell the listeners how it affects you and your mental health when it comes to your personal life, not music. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really difficult. Like I said earlier on, I think you see the best 10% of somebody. I know from looking back at my social media feeds, I go, oh yeah, I look really good there. That was like a really good outfit that day. Or like like one of my best mates is the guy who does visuals for Bad Love called Joe Beresford. Shout out, your boy. <laughs> Some days we'll go out and he'll have a camera and he'll make me look so good. I do not look that good, but he's just a sick, talented guy. And I'll put that online and that's like your 30 seconds of catching the light really mint. You wore a really great outfit. You were having a mint time. The rest of life is not like that. And I know from even looking back at my own social media feeds, and we would all do the same, that you go, 
oh yeah, there's like, it's like a highlights reel, you know, of the best montage bits of Andy Gannon's life. And you compare your worst 10%, because that's the bit that you feel most real, to someone else's best 10. And you're bombarded with that every second of every day. I get it so much about like fashion and men's health. Like, I don't have a six pack, but for some reason, I want one so bad. And like, I do all the exercise for it. And like, I try and eat well, but then I mess up and I have a kebab and stuff and whatever, because I'm like human and sometimes depressed. Whoopee. But there's so many guys that are like so insanely shredded, and you're like, how can another, like, and it looks so nonchalant. It's like, yeah, I had four coffees and a big bag of crisps. And I have a six pack, so why can't you? It's like, but at the same time, I spent six hours in the gym because I don't have another job because, like, my life is being a PT or my life is being a model. And I'm like, I spent 14 hours in the studio and I lived on 10 coffees and a bag of Watsits. Like, why don't I have a six pack too? Like, I want one. And it does permeate everything that we do, doesn't it? Like, like I say, fashion and health are two bits for me. Like, I'm really into, like, cool clothes and I really want to really want to have jeans that fit well. Where the hell does anybody get those? And I watch models who are like, you know, I'm 5'11". Sometimes I say I'm six foot if I'm feeling good. But I watch models that are like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, who've got dead long legs. And jeans just look amazing on them because they've got like mint worked out legs and a great ass and they're tall. So they're like proportions of their body look really good. But at 5'11", I just look a bit more 50-50. So they just don't look as good on me. And it's crazy. Because you, all you experience all the time is these people that look amazing in them. You don't look at you and the people around you and go, oh, yeah, we're all real people that just wear jeans like real people. And nice jeans still. And you still look good in them. But you aren't some, like, 6'6 Scandinavian amazing model with, like, angular facial structure. I've got a bit of podge because I'm inside all the time. And, like, I like cookies. And that's fine. That's totally okay. But, yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? I think, for me, I'm like you. If I'm looking at something too much, I mute it because I have to, because I get a bit obsessive. Even if I feel like I really enjoy the content that person's making, like there are a few models and who are like influencers and they just wear like mint menswear and stuff. And I follow them for a little while, but eventually I realize that I'm, I'm obsessing it a little bit and going, I just, because obviously the algorithm makes it start to get to the top of your feed so you just open your phone and you go oh there he is again looking amazing having the life that i wish i had like i think you've got to get to the point then where you go okay i need to see you no more mute by time you know and it doesn't mean that you can't search it out and go okay let's nick some outfits let's go and find i don't know where he went in manchester for some nice food because that place looked cool that's totally fine but i don't know it's social media in general i think is it's designed to be as engaging as possible. The algorithm to it is self-fulfilling and self-perpetuating machine that will always find a way to algorithmically engage people for as long as possible. And that makes it a really dangerous thing because as a human, you don't think with logic first. You think with heart first. And heart always goes, oh, that looks really good. That makes That fires my dopamine and makes me feel really great about stuff. You don't go, ah, logically, that's making me feel feelings X, Y, and Z. You just don't. You just kind of carry on with it. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Let's chuck it back at you, because you've already said you mute stuff. Like, tell me how you deal with some of it. So the main thing is muting. And I learned, it took me a long while to do this. 
I think I was following people from like you do from uni and stuff like that where you kind of naturally follow them because you want to stay in touch and then you realize a lot of these people are fucking boring yeah a lot of these people people are boring and then you see them for catch-ups and stuff like you know it's a group thing or you go to an event and you see these people and you're like you're quite a boring person in real life but your feed is just you trying to make your your life look like the best thing like all your holidays you put up every single day something that you're doing i always find you know i've not been on holiday for a long time but i always find those things kind of like be quite private and it's like it's a way for you to like detox from your phone and as much as you can and stuff like that so i think muting people that you you don't want the social ag of unfollowing because then it's all a bit awkward so i mute a lot of those people the ones that i'm not massively fond about like just keeping as a relationship i just unfollow or just unfriend and stuff so that for me is the main tool i'm still not perfect at it but that's for when it comes to social media and comparison culture I think that has been the main tool that I've used outside of getting better and, you know, therapy because it works for me in, in healing and trauma and in healing trauma and healing stuff like that. Mm. It's interesting. Like, I, yeah, I think I sort of hadn't even thought about other people close to me. But yeah, like I see it in my friends a lot. Like I've just realized that when we had our conversation previously, one thing that I'd said is I have a lot of like FOMO of seeing people out on a Friday and Saturday night, especially when I'm working. I don't want to delve into the music bit of it, but say I'm just busy doing whatever and I see all my mates out in Stoke. The place to go to is the Sugar Mill. And so many nights, they do all-nighters, I will see literally everybody I know from Stoke there. It's a mint place. Like, it's got, like, three floors and there's a smoking bed at the top and it's just, like, a great, fun environment. It's, like, I see everybody there and I'll just be like, shit, I should be there. Why am I not there? But when you're seeing that all the time, especially when you're living just day-to-day life, you know, I'm just working today and somebody happens to have a Wednesday off, so they went Midland Safari Park. I'll just see that and be like, why am I working today? They get to be at Midland Safari Park. They've also just worked seven days in a row, but they don't post a photo every day of back at the shit office job, can't wait to type on the keyboard. They don't post that. Nobody does that because that's not the exciting bit. They post Midland Safari Park because that's the really good bit. Just like I don't post making the fifth coffee of the day because just need to get through. Like, yeah, like especially in your friends, it's it's just about looking at your own behavior and going, what do I post and what don't I post? So if I'm doing it by those same kind of ratios, when you're feeling like that, I just go, okay, like I only post 5% of my life. So everybody else must do, you know, other than those people that are really frustrating and post every day about something mint because they are like an influencer or a model or like a famous artist who are doing something mint every day. And it's just like a whole other level of problems. So I just try and follow as few people like that as possible. (laughs) There's no overcoming that. Just some people are just lucky enough to have a great opportunity. It's a good philosophy to have, mate. I've got one more question before we move on. So... Going through all you've gone through, knowing what you do now, what would you tell 16-year-old Andy? I guess that other people feel the same, that like it's okay to engage with those feelings and to not deny them. For a long time, I was sort of really reluctant to accept that I had any problem going on and that I was dealing with something and that I had to engage with it. I think I would tell him, 
that other people feel the same and that like 10 years on, I still feel the same and that's okay because you'll just learn how to deal with it. And that's just part of the human experience. Just like you have anxiety and depression, some people are born with bendy spines, some people are born with no legs, some people need colostomy bags and that's just being human. Everybody's got their thing. Anybody who doesn't, they're the exception to the rule and they're really lucky. But at some point in life, something will come along and be their thing. I don't like to define myself by it, but I like to think that I'm nowadays pretty good at dealing with it. So yeah, I think that's that would be like the main thing is just like telling people that like it's okay to be this and to be like a man. It doesn't make you less masculine. The whole toxic masculinity around talking about your feelings is just bullshit. Just don't engage with that crap. Just like you can be whoever you want to be and still be a confident person and still be quote unquote a man. That's where I'd go with it, maybe. I doubt he would listen to me though, because at 16, I was probably a prick, yeah. We have come to our final topic of conversation, Andy, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I'd say my mental health is in a weird place right now. I think we're just coming out of lockdown, so I've got a lot of anxiety about the world. I've just separated from a long-term relationship, so that's kind of weird. But I think I'm trying to see all the positives in it. I'm, like, doing music loads. I'm writing a lot. I'm back in the studio with a lot of people. That definitely helps me just being around people. I've got really supportive friends, so we're all just enjoying being able to go back to the pub. And it's sunny, so... Right now, I think, on a whole, I'm a seven. Seven out of ten. That's a good place to be, I think, at the moment, given everything that's going on. What age do you think you were, Andy, given what we've discussed? When you first became self-aware and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think I was pretty young. I think I engaged with how I feel as a person, probably like... Definitely before I was a teenager in in a real sense of like personhood and and who I wanted to be in the world. Maybe like, I don't know, 10, 8. What do people say? What are other people's answers? It's a very big mix, to be fair, mate. It's a very big mix. So for me, despite the fact that I had 10 years of intense, severe trauma, I didn't really realise until I was 18 when I got to university Mm -hmm. and I thought that I would be having an amazing time of my life. And I was in many ways, but I was also crying myself to sleep when I got home from nights out. So that yeah. was when I went, oh, light bulb moment. Maybe mental health does affect me. And it's not just something that I, I imagine that, you know, far-flung celebs that I don't know uh, yeah. is affected by. Outside of music, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that haven't? I know you mentioned karate and martial arts when you were younger, but... Do you use that now and what other tools do you use to help you? I've been really rubbish at meditation recently, but definitely that was actually something that changed my life. That sounds like such like a a bougie thing to say, but like, yeah, like it genuinely did because it made me engage with myself in a totally different way and made me, I suppose, like the last question, made me further my self-awareness, made me really aware of not just that the thoughts were going around there, but that you could do something about it. That the only solution wasn't just to like go and have a drink or like go and sit outside and wait for it to go away. That you know you could you could engage with your own being and do something about it. It's definitely that. Yeah, doing Wing Chun, 
martial arts really helped me because I think a big part of that was like a self-confidence tool. Wing Chun's really great because it's like very traditional Chinese martial art. So there's so much like meditative practice in it as standard anyway. All the forms are all like, there's kind of a more academic side to it and a more martial side. And when you're training it, your Sifu will sometimes go, you know, this is the art side of the martial and sometimes it's the martial side of the martial. I thought that was a really interesting way to deal with it, that some of it is just about self-control. A lot of it is about understanding you, people around you. So think between those two things, I mean, I started both of those when I was in university properly and it was my third year of university, so I was 21 and I finally decided I'm going to come off medication because it was not good for me in any way. It was just making me flatline. Rather than not feel the lows, I was just feeling nothing. So that was just no good for where I was at. So yeah, between those two, I think they really helped me properly get a grasp and control over the way I was feeling, the way I handled each situation in life. And how do you support friends in your own social group or in your network who may have mental health issues themselves or maybe going through a poor period of mental health, whether that be men or women? I think, obviously, it's so individualised. I'd like to think that I've had some influence on it, but me and my close group of friends genuinely, like, all really supportive for each other. And we've got, like, it's part of, like, our band group chats. But sometimes someone can just say how they're feeling in there, just go, oh, like, you know, boys, I'm just having a bit of a shit day. If I put that in now, all four of them in that group chat, oh, sorry, all three of them, would all be like, yo, I'm free, man. Do you want to talk? Do you want to go out for a walk? Do you want to go for a beer? Should we go for a coffee? Like, just be really human with your mates and just be, like, really there. It's so individualised, but I think so much of it is just giving people space to talk about what they're feeling. And that's all it is. Like, if somebody comes to me and they're feeling something... I won't ever tell them what they're feeling or talk over them. I just sit there, let them rant it all out and then kind of feel my way of like, you know, do you want my opinion? Do you just want somebody to talk at? Like, or do you need me to tell you what I think? And, you know, and that's all okay. And I think especially in male culture, it's really good to build a relationship with your male friends that it's okay to talk about stuff. That is such a big part of bad love for me that like, Talking about that is fine and part of the male experience. Like, there's so much positivity around women's empowerment and everything right now, and I am 100% for that. Like, there's so many amazing women in my life that I've got so much respect for and so much love for, and I've learned so much of this from them. Like, my sister is an amazing woman, and so is my mom, and like, I've had great relationships with them growing up, and I've always been able to talk to my mum about anything and everything. She's such an intelligent woman. I think male culture needs to learn from that so much because girlfriends always talk to each other about that stuff. That's such like a part of girl culture is that like having emotion. Maybe I'm doing it a disservice. I'm happy to be informed if I'm wrong, but I think that's so much more part of female culture than it is male culture. And just between everybody, I think if we're just all real with each other, just give everyone a safe space to talk about what's going on. That's got to be better for humanity. And as a final question, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think it's got to start with education. I think everything's got to be like we were saying before. You grow up in school with dickhead guys who don't 
engage with it because there's no education about it. It's about starting the conversation really early. In football, the black band and taking the knee starts a conversation in hundreds of thousands of households up and down the country for a silent majority in the middle who have no idea that that's an issue in the world and think in the very same way. We've got to like find a way to cut to the centre of society to talk about these kind of things. Because as I've said already, it's just like totally a part of the male experience and the human experience of life is to have all these feelings. I find it so surreal that we don't talk about it because everybody feels them. So it is nonsensical. Just because it's a difficult thing, though, and it's it's sometimes hard to communicate, it's got to start with people just treating each other better as a standard, and it's got to start uh, education. And I think it's already getting better. Even strangely, things like TikTok and things like that make people engage with it on such, like, I don't know, a, a zeitgeisty level. It's, it's just so permeating of popular culture that it becomes undeniable and that's what you've got to do with it. It can't be fringe academic conversation. It's got to just be role models and people in TV and educators talking about those things candidly. It's got to be things like we're doing today that just let other people know that's just a normal thing and yeah, it's cool to talk about it. Like me and you, Freddie, we've never met in real life. We've had a couple of conversations, but we could talk about this because we're both blokes in a modern world and both feel very similar things about it. And that's totally cool. That is fine. It doesn't detract from your manhood in any way. If you want to be a modern manly man, that's cool. You can also feel sad about shit. And I think that's got to be like the cutting message of it all like if you want to talk about it just talk about it talk about it like you want to talk about football talk about it like you want to talk about the girls that you like talk about it like you talk about music it's not weird like we just all have those feelings like great cool carry on with it andy from bad love thank you so much for coming on behind the mic mate absolutely my pleasure We have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thanks to Andy from Bad Love for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him. A Place For Me, one of Bad Love's favourite tracks of mine, will play us out. And as always, I'll put all of Bad Love's streaming and social media links in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who's tuned into this episode. Remember, I'm going to sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. Spread the good word of Vent and the Just Checking In podcast and Behind The Mic series. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can go visit our GoFundMe if you want to do a one-off donation. All of the links for that are in our link tree. If you want to support us even more, please consider supporting us by giving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts as well. That will help us reach more people and get more listens and more people finding out about all the good work that we do. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, it's always okay to vent.
I know you're hot. 